Oh, thanks, Simon. And I was going to open with a kind of snappy recap of where we got to, but I don't think I can be what Simon just said there. <laughs> kind of, God, this is bad. It's going to get worse, Habakkuk. Really? Yes. But I'll, I, will put, <laughs> I will paint in some of the details. So, um, uh, yeah, Simon opened in, in chapter one in the series and looked at verses one to four. And this kind of raised the big questions which sit over our whole series. So kind of, God, Why? Why is Judah in such a terrible state? How long is this going to go on? Why aren't you doing anything about it? And then, as we already know, we got God's answer in verses 5 to 11, where he says, I'm going to send the Babylonians against you to judge you. It's going to get a lot worse. And so we come to verse 12 in chapter one, where Paul started speaking And obviously Habakkuk is reeling by this revelation that a situation he already thought was bad, God had said, yeah, it's going to get even worse. Um, And we looked at how Habakkuk responded. How how do we respond when we hit these times of uncertainty and suffering? And actually Habakkuk acknowledges God. The start of his response is to worship. Um, And we we drew a lot from that. Um, If you haven't heard... Um, Paul's talk last week. Do do listen to them. Do listen to all of them. But there was a yeah really strong point on how do we respond when we encounter this kind of suffering or disaster. Nonetheless, Habakkuk does have some questions. There is some pushback there. There is God. I know. I know that we're bad. I've told you we're bad. But these Babylonians, they're they're even worse. Are, are you really sure about this? Um. And we we started looking at the first part of God's response to that question. And the the key verse, which is where we we kind of left it on, um, was, well, just before we left it, was in chapter two, verse four, um, where God says, see, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. So that's referring to Babylon. So God is saying, look, of course, I know that they are evil and that they are doing bad things and there will be consequences. But. But the righteous will live by faith. So this is this is the kind of almost the first verse of hope we get in the entire book. And, and it's signposting the fact, yes, it's still all unclear. You still have those why questions. You still have those how long questions. But I know the evil of those who oppress you and you, the righteous, will live by faith. Um, so we're going to pick up. Um, on God's response. So this is like the second half of God's response that we're looking at this morning. And if we if we just take a step back, um, I don't know how you found looking at Habakkuk as a book so far. Um, I don't know how if you've had time to talk about it in life groups at all. But it raises some huge questions for us, doesn't it? It raises some absolutely huge questions, as well as kind of those those questions which land on the kind of emotional level, just the why, God, get me out of this, the how long, that kind of initial response. It raises all kinds of bigger questions as well, such as, well, what's the relationship between God and suffering? What about the sovereignty of God? What about the responsibility of man? What about the permission that Jesus gives or doesn't give to demonic forces? This, this book just explodes all of those kinds of questions. And we can sometimes live in those questions on a, on a bit of an intellectual level. But when scripture gives them to us and they puts it in our face, we have to wrestle with them because they are the questions we'll be asking ourselves. 
So we, we had a fantastic time in Life Group this week, just, just, just working on some of those really, really difficult questions. But the kind of questions that when you chew over and you, under God's guidance, discuss, you, you get some breakthrough. So I really encourage you, if you've not had a chance to review Habakkuk yet in Life Group, spend some time just, just looking at the whole message and, and talking through, well, what does this mean? What does it mean for these big questions that I've got? So let's, let's get to today's passage, um, which is chapter 2, verses 6 to 20. Um, and though the, though the message of this passage is hard, actually it's a very clear message. So in some ways I think I've actually got one of the easier preachers in the series. I've not had to do too much work working out what God means when he says what he says in these verses. It's pretty clear cut. Um, and so the question... The question is, what is going to happen to these Babylonians? What, are going to, what is going to happen to the oppressors? What is going to happen to those who bring evil? God, I, I need something on this. And this is what God says. Will not all of them taunt him? This is talking about Babylon. With ridicule and scorn, saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who built his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruins. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. If you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? Is it, co- it is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So the overall message, as I say, I think is very clear to answer the question, will evil get away with its acts forever? Will the Babylonians get away with what they have done to the nations and what they are going to do to Israel? The answer is a decisive no. God has spoken that there will be judgment against all evil, against all oppression, against all injustice. 
But we get a bit of the bigger picture as well, don't we? So Habakkuk still doesn't know the timings of this. Because remember, Babylon hasn't actually yet conquered Judah. Babylon hasn't yet afflicted the oppression on Judah that has been prophesied. So Habakkuk's still looking ahead at this point. He's looking ahead way into the future. Um, And God's saying, yes, this judgment will come, but also the judgment will be judged. So sorry, I'll make that more clear. The judgment that the Babylonians is bringing on Judah, that will happen, Habakkuk. But then I will judge them for they will not be just judges. They are they are committing acts of evil. I'm using them to judge you, but their acts are evil and they themselves will be judged. And I hope that a couple of verses of hope really jumped out of you as we were reading through that. So verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What an amazing picture. So amidst all of these descriptions of judgment, God shows what the alternative is. God shows what his end is. His end is to fill the whole earth with his glory and we will live in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's the big picture. That's the hope. And then verse 20 at the end. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The idea that the earth just has no reply to the greatness, the majesty, the grandeur, the power of God. We can just be silent before him in his holy temple and we'll gain so much when we just wait on the Lord and go, whoa, this is who you are, God. I I have no words to say in the light of your glory, in light of your power. So we are going to spend we are going to spend some time in those verses Um, but I want to start by by going through. Um, you, you will have seen as we went through the passage that it came in a series of woes. God pronounced five different woes on the Babylonians. Um, and I want to take each one of those and just look at them in a bit more detail. Um, and I think as we go through them, we probably won't find it that hard to identify um, the sins, the evils that are being spoken against. We probably won't find it that hard to recognise them. Um, clearly, the descriptions given here are the ways in which the Babylonians practice them. But I think we, we can quickly see um, we can quickly see these categories um, when we consider um, when we consider the world today, when we consider our own struggles with sin. I don't think these will be hard things to relate to. So in verses six to eight, um, the specific judgment here is over the sin of theft or extortion. So when when a nation takes over a nation, it is rarely a cordial act. It is rarely done um, with peace at mind. It is usually done with the view of we will take your wealth. We will benefit from the fact that we are conquering you. And the Babylonians, that was exactly the model that they operated on. So, so when they came in somewhere, um, terrible things would happen to the land, including um, the theft of goods from individuals and communities, and usually the, the installation of unjust bureaucracy that would, would oppress the people who had just been taken over in extortion. So we see that in things, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. This, this, this idea that kind of all of they have set themselves on is gaining more wealth, that kind of that rampaging, ravaging pursuit of wealth at all costs, including killing 
and oppressing nations. And and again, um, theft is something that hasn't gone away, is it? Theft and extortion isn't something that the world is clear of. So, and this goes for most of the woes we're going to look at. When we, when, we see, when we see these things in the world today, when we see it reported on, when we encounter it in our own community or even in our own lives, um, we, we can think back here and say, actually, God's got something to say about this. God has got something to say about the theft and the extortion that we see around us. Actually, God isn't going to let this go. That, that isn't the end of the story. The new story is not the end of the story. God has got something to say on it. So verses 9 to 11, I, th- I think theft and extortion is a fairly, fairly clear category. I don't think we need to spend more time there. Uh, verses 9 to 11 are a, a little, bit, um, little bit unclear. Um, but I think, I think the key here is, in verse 9, those words, unjust gain. And you might be saying, well, why, why is that different from theft? Why is that different from extortion? What, what does unjust gain mean in this context? Um, and, and if we read on into verses 10, um, into verse 10, um, it says, You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. That, that is somewhat ambiguous. But what, what, what I think that means is um, that language around shaming your own house. That's almost like there's some kind of systematic injustice going on. They, they are using structures. They are using the system for unjust gain. So whereas theft might be what we'd think of as robbery or in the case of war, just plundering. This is a more systematic injustice that I think is being spoken of in verses nine to eleven. Um, and again, we, we have endless reports in the news of systematic injustices, whether that is in the benefit system or in the trade system or in um, the security councils of the world. Those kind of inbuilt injustices um, that cause pain for people. Um, I think that is what is being hinted at in these verses. Um, I hold to that interpretation somewhat lightly. Um, but from, from what I've studied and what I've seen, that is, that is my best bet of what I can make of verses 9 to 11. But what I find really interesting in these verses is, is actually verse 11. So, so not only will God judge, because he's pronounced woe over it, not only will God judge this injustice, but actually the very structures in which these injustices are committed will bear testimony against the oppressor. That this idea that even our, our buildings, our landscape, our history can tell stories about what has gone in the past, whether positive or negative stories. That's why I'm sure many of us, when we move into a new home or as a church, when we move into a new building, we spend time praying around the building. We spend time um, claiming the, the, the physical areas for God. And part of the reason for that is because they will have testimonies of what has gone before. And, and this, is, this is difficult when, when we live in, in the present time and we live in the moment and God's got the big picture. But, but again, this is the idea that things don't get forgotten. God does not let things get forgotten. And the creation does not let things get forgotten either. And I think that's, that's, what's, that's what's being said in verse 11. Your injustice will be so plain to see in history that the very lands you have occupied will be testifying against you and be, and be just demonstrating your injustice so... Um, Inarguably, it would just be so obvious. So that's verses 9 to 11. At verses 12 to 14, um, 
very clearly signposted, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. So this is about direct violence and not just, again, individual acts of violence, but basing your whole way of operating upon, upon violence. And again, it's not hard for us to relate this to some of the things we've seen recently in recent history. Some of the terrible dictatorships that have been and that carry on today that keep people in check through systematic violence and torture and persecution of all opposition. Um, but bringing it closer to home, m- many of you will know that um, I've recently started working in London and part of that routine I'm now in now means I read a London newspaper, the Evening Standard, every day on my train journey home. Um, and there has been a spate of violent crime in London in the past two months. There have been over 50 murders in the city since the start of the year, which is, which is higher than anything for the past, I think, 12 years with statistic. So, so there's clearly something going on there. And most of the analysis around it is that that is now the way of operating um, in particular marginalised um, gang-related groups um, who, who that's, that's just what they think it is to, to build a city, to make a town, to make themselves known. Violence has become the language within those groups. Um, and and this, is, this is a disaster. The Lord will not, build, um, will not build upon violence. He will not reward those who build upon violence. And, and it's... God's almost saying, look, why, why are you doing this? I know you are committing violence to try and build something. I know you are committing violence because you are labouring to build an empire for yourself. But actually, verse 13, don't you know that labouring after a temporary kingdom built by violence in your own image is folly? It is fuel for the fire. It is labour that is in vain. And this is where we land on verse 14. Can't you lift your eyes up from seeing that you can only make progress through violence and oppression. Can you not lift your eyes up and see that the end is for the earth to be filled with my glory? And isn't that better? Can you not see that it is better, that it is my glory that fills the earth rather than yours? And by the way, your glory will never fill the earth. It will rise and it will fall and you will be in the grave. And if you don't turn from your violence, you will be judged. Woe upon those who commit violence. Can you not see there is such a better way Can you not see that the Lord, the one who we call the Prince of Peace, is going to triumph? Can you not lift your eyes up from this violence and see my glory and know that it will cover all of the earth, including that little bit that you carve out and say is your own? It will not stand. It will not last. My glory will last. Your violence will not. So I think there's more in there for us on that verse, and we're going to come back to that later. But I want to keep on making progress through the woes. So verses 15 to 17. And in these verses, we we, we get a few things compounded into one, but at the heart of it is drunkenness and lust. And and actually God doesn't doesn't go to great effort to make distinction between them, seeing one lead on to the other. And they all come from that that same source of of pursuing, pursuing self and flesh above spirit and others so woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors pouring it from the wine scrim wine skin till they are drunk so he can gaze on their naked bodies and again we we we, we don't need to struggle to imagine what this is like we we know what drunkenness and lust looks like we know what that looks like on an individual level we know what it looks like 
when it lands upon communities. We know what it looks like when it permeates a whole culture. So we, we don't need to struggle to understand the, 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 the woe of drunkenness and lust. And, and the judgment here is essentially saying that the, the Babylonians were, were, were happy to, um, as well as pursue financial gain, political gain, uh, they, they would happily um, pursue sexual gain from the, the countries that they conquest. So they were, they were ruthless in taking all that they could, um, including, including terrible things, including rape from their oppressors. And, and in this, this picture, um, the victims of their drunkenness and their lust, they seem to be in a position of shame and brokenness. But God says, absolutely not. It is the oppressors who will be filled with shame instead of glory. It will be them who will be exposed. It will be them who will be judged. They will not get away with it. Verse 16, and disgrace will cover your glory. And then we get this, this verse in verse 17, which, which kind of seems a bit disconnected about the violence you have done to Lebanon. But actually, I think it's, it, it's continuing that chain. Um, of when you pursue your own gain and when you pursue things from the flesh, actually violence is, is, is pretty close to hand. If drunkenness and lust often go together, actually violence is probably in your heart as well. And they, 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 they can operate as a, as a terrible tree. Um, and God's saying every bit of destruction that you have wreaked because of your drunkenness, every bit of destruction that you have wreaked because of your lust, that will all be added up. It will all come back on your head. The destruction of animals will terrify you. So not even not even that, which we might think, OK, it's bad that animals have been destroyed. But compared to the drunkenness, compared to the violence, compared to the rape, compared to the sexual immorality, maybe that's not such a big deal. But God's saying, no, everything you do will come back upon your heads. It will terrify you for you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. And this verse tells me we shouldn't make a great distinction between um, sin that we could see as as kind of more personal things and sin that we see as mo- more social things. No, rebellion against God is all one and the same. It might manifest itself in different ways, uh, but actually your your lustful violence um, isn't any different to your to your pillaging of villages, um, your your desire to worship yourself. Um, isn't isn't any different to the desire to build a whole empire up. There, 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 is, there isn't a distinction. Sin manifests itself in individual acts and in community acts, uh, but it is all sin. It is all focusing on the self and not on God and all of the different and terrible manifestations of that. So we've had these four woes over specific things pronounced by God. Um, and then we come to verse 18. Um, which is all about idolatry. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. And this kind of language about idolatry is language we see in quite a few places in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And actually there's almost a, a kind of mocking tone that is often given to, to people who will build, build something out of a piece of wood and then bow down and worship it. And, and we get a bit of that again here, don't we, um, in verse 19. E- even in the act of promote, pronouncing woe, woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, 
wake up. E- even in pronouncing it, we can see the ridiculousness and the futility of speaking to a piece of wood and asking it to come to life or speaking to a stone and asking it to wake up. Um, but, but that mocking voice isn't, isn't there to make light of the issue. Um, it, it, it's there to highlight what a deadly serious, what a kind of madness it is to worship anything or anyone but the living God. Um, and Paul Norris did a fantastic job in speaking of this in his preach last week. So um, I won't repeat his points, but um, he, he was speaking about how we can read passages like this and think, we don't bow down to wood. We don't say to stones come to life. But what about those hidden gods? What about those subtle gods? What about those gods which might even manifest themselves in some of the terrible sins we've been looking at this morning and have a hold on our hearts that we, we don't realise or that we naturally start spending our time aiming towards those things without really realising? So these verses on idolatry are not irrelevant to us. They, they, they are desperately relevant. And in fact, all of the woes that we've looked at so far, all of the theft, all of the extortion, the injustice, the violence, the lust, um, it wouldn't be wrong to say that all of these stem from idolatry. Because when you worship yourself or when you worship an image of how you want to be or how you want your political kingdom to be, um, that is the source of where all of these other terrible sins come from. Whereas if God had been first in the first place, None of this would have happened. So so idolatry is is almost the base level rebellion against God that is underlying all of these other things that we have seen. So we need we need to pay attention to these verses. It's also interesting to note that there isn't actually a specific judgment outlined against the idolaters, against all of the other kind of woes that have been pronounced. There's been a quite specific judgment, uh, but one isn't given here. And I, I think that kind of kind of reiterates again that it, it's, it's just such a, a baseline level sin that God, he just pronounces woe over it. He, does, he doesn't link it to, to a specific manifestation. And that's the only one of those woes where that happens. And I think here, yeah, I, I will just say a bit more about idolatry. So what's, what's the alternative? Let's, 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 let's start bringing it to us. Let's start bringing it to our walks with God. How can we ensure that we are not standing in the sin of idolatry? So we need God to utterly captivate our hearts. We need to put ourselves in a position where God is the one that we desire most, love most, listen to the most. We need to put ourselves into position where he is the one above all others. So we need to be pursuing knowledge of God on all levels. We need to be pursuing knowledge of his character. We need to pursue knowledge of what he's done in saving us. And we need to pursue knowledge in the sense of truly connecting with him through his spirit and worshipping him. We need, we need to pursue the knowledge of God wherever and however we can find it. Because as we get exposed to, as we dwell more in God and who he is, that's when our hearts go, wow. That's when our hearts, that's when God opens up our hearts and comes in. That's where all of the things that could lead us astray, that's where those chains start to be broken. When we worship 
the true and living God, when we delight in the true and living God, when we treasure him, that is power. That is what breaks the chains of idolatry. That's what can make us look at the alternatives and go, no, I'm with God. What he offers is better. What he gives my heart is better. Who he is is more true than all of the lies that I'm hearing over here. So our, our, our path out of idolatry is to pursue God every day in everything, in all we do. And this is clearly, 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 clearly not not where the Babylonians were, but also not where Judah was in the first place. Because let's remember the starting place of Habakkuk. The starting place was Habakkuk was mourning over the sin of his own people. I'm sure including himself humbly in that category as well. That was his starting place. And I'm sure that one of the reasons why there was such a terrible state in Judah in the first place is because they had lost sight of God and who he was to them. So that, that, that's kicked it all off. Habakkuk mourned over the sin of Judah and then he has to confront the even greater sin of the Babylonians. And I think idolatry is a is a key category for unlocking what was going on in both these cases. Um, so we've been putting them up as we go along. This, this is the full picture of both the evil of Babylon and the judgment that God will bring against it. So theft, unjust gain, violence, drunkenness and lust, idolatry. So how do we respond to this stuff? How do we respond to these things? We've already talked about how it's not difficult to spot them in the world. What, what can we do about it? So I think there's three things we have to do in response to this and that the passage gives us some help in getting to. So I think the first thing to say is we need to absolutely avoid being judgmental and hypocritical as we consider the sin in the world. The worst thing we could do after hearing this passage would be to go away, put on our bunker suit mentalities and just wait for the judgment to come and go, Okay, world, be gone with you. You're evil. You're going to be judged. I'm out of here. I'm waiting for Jesus to turn up. That is absolutely not the response that God wants here. And and there's, there's a couple of reasons that God doesn't want that response. Firstly, it's highly hypocritical. God has set us free from sin in Jesus Christ. But we are not yet immune from it. Sin still lives on in our old bodies, as Paul describes it, even as we step into more and more freedom in the spirit. So we are not immune from any of these sins. And we put ourselves in a very dangerous position if we think, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. I couldn't possibly do that. Because we start placing the emphasis back on the I rather than on God who has freed us from these things in the first place. So it is spiritually dangerous and hypocritical. Um, to be judgmental of sin because of who we are as redeemed sinners. And this is where I think we can go the other way as well. Uh, we can get caught up in feeling guilty about all of these things and where we can relate to them in large eyes. We, we cannot accept the forgiveness that we have from Jesus and stay in that place of guilt, which is why I think the distinction between mourning over sin and feeling guilty about sin is so critical. So Habakkuk was mourning over sin. Um, and we spent some time thinking about how, in, in Simon's first preach, how we should mourn over sin. Um, and that is so different from feeling guilty over sin, because mourning is showing kind of, we've had a heart level change. We really don't like this anymore, God. I, I, I want things to be different. 
And when we mourn sin, when we hate sin for what it is and not just for the fact that we've done it, that is so powerful. That's what opens the door to transformations. That's what builds those kind of emotional responses in the heart that goes to God first rather than to sin. Whereas if we stand in the position of feeling guilty, one, we haven't fully recognised that we are free from all guilt in the redemption that God has brought in Jesus. But also not, we won't move on. We'll stay in a mindset of law. We'll stay in a mindset of, oh, I just need to hold on till Jesus has come back and then all of this guilt can go. No, God has got freedom from guilt for us now. But he doesn't want us to stop mourning our sin. Otherwise, we'll become complacent and in a spiritually dangerous place. So that's the first thing. We must not respond with judgmentalism. Rather, let's mourn our own sin and find the spiritual power that comes from that. Um, and, I, and I think I think that verse, um, but the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. I think that's permission to do that. That's permission to sit with God and go, yeah, there's some stuff that's wrong. And actually, God, I want to be broken about it because you are God and you are in your temple. And I'm down here. So that's our first response. Secondly, we need to go out to this broken world. We need to go out. Not only do we need to not judge the broken world. We need to go out with love. And actually, isn't that the gospel? Isn't the good news is that Jesus is the king and he is redeeming the world. He is reconciling all things to himself. And by the way, he's going to use the church to do that. He's going to use us to do that. We are not a plan B. We are a plan A. And if we don't go out, if we don't enter into the pain and the suffering and even into some of these horrific situations we've been considering this morning, we will not be fulfilling our mission will be missing out on the very mandate and calling and reason that God has put us on this earth for. And to stay in our bunkers, compared to being part of um, filling the earth with God's glory, as verse 14 puts it, that seems like a really poor place to me. That seems like a really mean place to want to put ourselves, rather than saying, okay, God, we're weak, we're broken, but you're saying that you are sending us out into the world to be your hands and your feet on the earth. Will we say yes to that? I want to say yes to that. We don't say yes to that perfectly. Of course we don't. But that is our calling, church. That is our calling to be the healers, to be the reconcilers, to be the builders of things that are sustainable and not built upon violence or theft and injustice, to build things that are based on righteousness and love and true labour. That's, that's our calling. And that is an incredible calling. And we have permission to take hold of that calling from verse 14 in this passage. And then thirdly, when, when these things land on our doorstep, when we can't avoid them, when we cannot avoid their pain, when we cannot avoid the consequences they bring, we just need to remember that God will triumph because he has already triumphed in Christ in defeating sin on the cross and in defeating death when he was raised from the dead God has already won the victory the triumph over all of these things we see around us or that we may even encounter ourselves the victory has already been won and we, we've talked about before the, 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 the timings are all messed up we, we, we're living in the now and the not yet we're having to hold this tension between knowing God has won the victory and still seeing what seem like so many defeats around us but we need to remember they're not defeats. God has got the triumph. And I think that's what he was trying to say to Habakkuk. And I think that's what Habakkuk wanted, what God wanted Habakkuk to take back to Judah to say, look, you are my people. You have gone astray. 
I'm sending the Babylonians to discipline you and bring you back to your senses. But know that I will triumph. Know that even now, if you turn to me, you will be part of my triumph. You can be part of this victory. You can be part of this glorious filling of the whole earth. And it leads us with a very stark choice, doesn't it? It leads us with a very stark choice. Do we want to be part of this story of filling the whole earth with God's glory? Or do we want to dwell in these things? And we know that these, this leads to the terrible judgments we've read about this morning. It's, it's a stark choice. It's a clear choice. And I think that is the choice that God wanted to give to Judah when he gave this message to Habakkuk. So we might not have all of the answers to why, O oh Lord. We might not have all of the answers to how long, O oh Lord. But we've certainly got the answer to the question, God, are you going to let these evildoers get away with it? The answer is no. The answer is no. 